You can take your Bibles this morning if you like, or if you will, and open them to Psalm 61. Psalm 61. You know, Karl Marx has been attributed with the criticism that religion is the opiate of the masses. That it offers temporary relief from our suffering by offering pleasant illusions. But it doesn't inspire us to confront and overcome reality. Sigmund Freud wrote that believers give the name of God to some vague abstraction which they have created for themselves. And Jesse Ventura, former pro wrestler and governor of Minnesota, it's almost absurd to quote him alongside the other two who seem far more serious even as they are very wrong, but nevertheless, he said that organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. Now, I don't want to get off on a tangent this morning uh, discussing the merits of so-called organized religion. But I do want us to consider for a few minutes today whether there is any real substance to our faith. Is there any real help to be had in trusting in God? This God that we read about, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Israel, of David, of Daniel, is there any benefit? Does prayer bring any real, tangible relief from the troubles that surround us? Do the promises of God bring any real hope of rest and comfort? Does worshiping God regularly, over and over, offer any real benefit? Many people would answer those questions and say no. It might make you feel good for a while, but it won't actually change anything. And if we're going to be honest, for many of us here today, even though we say we believe that God exists, that He's all-powerful, that He's all-knowing, that He's all-loving, any honest evaluation of our lives would expose us as hypocrites in many ways. Now, I'm not saying that to try and make you feel bad about yourself this morning as we begin. But I do think it's worth taking a close look, an inventory of your own heart and your own life to see where you stand. And whether your habits and practices on a daily basis are consistent with what you say you believe. I know for me, this is a difficult and uncomfortable thing to do. And I would much rather just go through life without such self-examination. But as I spent time studying and meditating on Psalm 61 this week, preparing to preach to you today, I found myself confronted with the uncomfortable fact that the principles which David shares in this song touch on areas of weakness in my life. I found myself having to confess these failures in these areas to the Lord and seek forgiveness and restoration from Him. And I hope this morning that you will be challenged as well to submit to the Holy Spirit's examination to confess your own struggles, your own failures if needed, and to renew your commitment to pray, 
to meditate on God's word, and to worship him. In Psalm 61, in the opening verses, David speaks of his dedication to prayer. And then he follows that with explaining why he prays, and he concludes with a renewed commitment to daily worshiping God. And so I'd like to read it together and pray and ask God's help as we study his word. Psalm 61, you can just follow along with me. A psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Salah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. The psalm is written and given to the chief musician. Jeduthun is identified, actually, remember the heading of Psalm 62, but I believe that belongs to the end as a postscript of Psalm 61. Jeduthun was one of the chief uh, of the choir directors that had been assigned by David to worship and minister in the tabernacle. This song was a song of public worship and a public uh, praise uh, that God's people were to sing, to engage in when they gathered together. And so it's a very important psalm and very important message for us today. So let's pray and ask God's blessing as we study it together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. Thankful that we are not left in this world just to our own uh, inspiration or our own ideas, our own observations. We're so thankful that we don't have to trust in that shifting sand that is man's opinion of the way the world works. I'm thankful, Lord, that we can come and take up your word, and as we humble ourselves and we submit to what your word says, we can find ourselves seeing from your perspective. We can find the truth, a truth that is bedrock that we can stand upon firmly. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you've given it to us, but we also understand that it is your word, and so we need your help. If we are to understand it properly, and if we are to apply it to our lives and actually live it out, Lord, we need your help today. I pray that you would do a work in us. Help me as I speak. That my words would be very clear and that my, uh, my thoughts would not be clouded on this and that I would not detract from what you are saying in any way, but that I would simply make it clear, make it plain, so that each one of us can understand it and can receive it. And I pray that your spirit would have freedom to work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now most of the commentaries that I consulted this week suggests that this psalm was written by David sometime when he was in exile from the land of Israel. Uh, they usually point to verse 2 when he talks about being in the end of the earth. They say this is sometime when David was, was on exile, when he, maybe he had become king. And then many, time, many, many commentators suggest this psalm uh, was written when David was uh, on the run from Absalom, his son who tried to steal the throne. 
and that David in that instance was claiming the promises of the Davidic covenant. Others suggest that maybe this was written at another time when David was outside the actual borders of Israel. Speaks there to crying out to God. And again, speaks about going to the ends of the earth. But every time I read this psalm this week, I, 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 couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but see that this psalm just doesn't have the same kind of edge that those other psalms did. And we've, we've just been through a whole series of psalms from Psalm 52 all the way to Psalm 59 that were written at a time of great and extreme distress in David's life. When David had experienced uh, just the, the, the outright attack uh, by Saul. I mean, Saul tried to murder him, and then on top of that, his character was assassinated. David was forced to flee from his home. He was forced to flee into the wilderness, and he fled to the, to the land of the Philistines, and then back in the wilderness, and all over the place. And, and Saul just chased him all over creation, and David uh, was running. And we have that kind of urgency and that, that, that real edge to those psalms. And I, I just didn't see that in this psalm in the same way. I don't see this psalm as a desperate lament. Instead, what I see in this psalm is a settled reflection of a man who has learned to trust in God, whose life has proven over and over the reality of God's goodness and God's help. And a man whose testimony is consistently that God is faithful through every trial. And so I don't, and, and I'll admit to you, I don't have... Uh, any strong, any real, you know, evidence to base this on. There's really not much there. We looked at there's not much of anything in the heading. There's nothing in the psalm that indicates a particular instance. And so I, I recognize that I may be kind of swimming upstream here, but I also realize that there's nothing in here that tells us when this was written. And I think this psalm probably was written later on in David's life as he reflected back on all that God had done in his life and how God had proven himself faithful. And that's kind of the approach that I've taken as I've prepared this message today. David begins this psalm with a familiar request that, that God hear him and that God pay attention to his prayer there in that first verse. Now, that doesn't mean that at that moment God, uh, that, that doesn't mean that David felt like God was absent or ignoring him at that moment, even though that is often how believers feel when we find ourselves in trials and tribulations, isn't it? As if God is not hearing. We're crying out and it just seems as if He's not really paying attention. But here, I think in this case, this is David's recognition that prayer is always offered in weakness rather than strength. Prayer is always offered in humility rather than arrogance. Because God is not obligated to hear and respond. In fact, I read a, a, a blog post by Jared Wilson this week in which he said, if we were powerful, we wouldn't need to pray. If we were powerful, we wouldn't need to pray. The tone of David's prayer, right from the get-go, is that of humility, of submission and dependence he simply wants God to pay attention to his prayers. And frankly, the language here suggests it doesn't matter whether it's a hymn that has been carefully written to praise God or whether it's just the cry of his heart. 
Whatever the shape of the prayer, it's enough that God should listen to him and hear him. He's opening two verses. The principle that David is communicating to to us is this, that prayer is the only alternative for overwhelmed hearts. The first verses illustrate this. The first verse illustrates this. It shows us David's example as he cries out to the Lord in humility, pleading that God hear him. The second verse really states the principle more directly when he says, from the end of the earth, right, I will cry to you. Why? Because the location, the particular location, doesn't really seem that important. Wherever David finds himself, even to the very ends of the earth, he will call out to God. If the location doesn't matter, though, the circumstance does. Because notice what he says there. From the end of the earth, I'll cry to you. It doesn't matter where I am, I'll cry to you. Why? Or when? My heart is overwhelmed. The circumstance matters here. Whenever his heart is overwhelmed, literally the word is covered. My heart is covered. When I just, it's too much for me. That's when he says that there's an occasion of prayer. We're reminded here that prayer is the tool for the weak and the vulnerable. Which is probably a good part of the reason why we don't pray like we should. Because we're just too capable of making it in this world. I mean, we don't generally worry about and wonder about where our next meal is coming from, where we're going to lay our head to sleep tonight. We don't feel overwhelmed by the day-to-day, and so we reserve this kind of humble prayer for those times of special trouble, you know, when things have really gotten out of hand. But most of the time, we're all right. And so we don't really feel this urgency to pray that David uh, expresses here. And in contrast, we have David here who feels completely vulnerable. Uh, the idea, or the, the, the picture that I think comes to mind is he's, that he's painting here in this, in this verse is that he's on the ground. He's down in the low area, completely vulnerable to attack. And he calls out for God's attention to lead him to a place of height and safety. That's where he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And it's not just that the rock is higher above his head. It's not that the rock is taller than he is. It's that it's a place that's inaccessible to him. He cannot get there on his own. And so he prays and asks for God's mercy and God's grace to lift him above the fray and out of his enemy's reach. But again, location doesn't matter all that much. In asking to be led to a high rock, David is really asking God to draw him close to his side. And we don't have time to go through it this morning. This is one of the things I want to study out next Sunday uh, during Sunday school. So if you come, we're going to study this out a little bit more in depth. But the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, numerous places, we have record of God describing himself as a rock. Just 
Consider just one instance this morning from the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2. Hannah says, No one is holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. You see, David is not asking here for God to just remove him from the trial. He's not just saying, God, I'm in a bad spot, fix it. Get me out of trouble. Just remove me from the situation. What he's really asking for here is God to bring him close to himself for protection, for safety, and for comfort. Now, that is, if that's not clear in verse 2, it's very much made clear in verses 3 and 4. And these verses really reveal the first rationale for turning to God in prayer when his heart is overwhelmed. Verse 3, For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Experience has taught David many lessons. Not the least of which is God himself is a shelter a refuge and a comfort in times of distress. So why pray to God? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God has been a proven help in the past. David, this is what he refers to. God has been a proven help in the past. Now, when we lived in, uh, in New Mexico, I had the privilege of meeting several soldiers who were assigned to the Army Research Laboratory at White Sands Missile Range. And uh, these men were men who had served in active duty uh, in some very hostile places uh, in, in the world. And when they returned stateside, they were given an assignment that was kind of a decompression assignment. The assignment at White Sands was pretty laid back. They didn't have any PT. They didn't have any, uh, any uh, you know, drill. They didn't have to get up at a certain time. They had very leisurely schedule. Uh, they were assigned to the engineers at the Army Research Laboratory. And their job was to take every piece of new technology designed by the engineers and scientists, take it out into the field, and test it as thoroughly as possible. And that meant drop it, kick it, run over it with a tank, shoot it, blow it up. Uh, whatever it took to break it, that was their job. Find a way to break it. And then take it back to the engineers after it was broken, give it to them and say, fix it, and figure out how to make it stronger. How do you make it better? That was their job. And so the whole point was, the whole purpose was that by the time that that new body armor or the radio or the computer or whatever the thing was, was actually placed into service, it would be something the soldiers could trust with their very lives. Having endured severe testing in the desert southwest, it could be expected to work in environments all around the world. That's the kind of situation that David is speaking about here with him and God. He had endured incredible trials over the years. Again, things that would make most of our lives seem tame and almost boring by comparison. And yet God had always been faithful. He was a shelter. There in verse 3, the word means a refuge, a place of safety. A strong tower, David describes him as. A fortress into which people could run and barricade the door when the enemy attacked. These were images that were very familiar to people in ancient times. 
people who did not enjoy the kind of safety and security that we have here in modern-day America. They had these structures built into their cities where they could go when the enemy attacked and they would be safe. David also speaks here of abiding in God's tabernacle. Verse 4. Trusting in the shelter of his wings. Now the imagery here could be taken a couple of different ways. It may simply be talking about God's presence. Tabernacle could just be the tent of God, his dwelling place. And it may be enjoying his personal protection using the image of a of a of a hen covering her chicks with her wing, and the Bible uses that image of God in numerous places. But it also could be talking about the actual tabernacle in Israel, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And, and, and some commentators think that the, the, the wings that are talked about here are the wings of the cherubim that, that, that covered over the Ark of the Covenant. And if that's the case, then it would be speaking of David seeking shelter in the tabernacle, in the place where God dwelt in Israel. But as I said earlier, the location is not that significant because either way, whether he's inside the tabernacle in, you know, in Jerusalem there, or whether he's at the ends of the earth, it's God's presence that offers protection and safety. Experience has taught David, whether in the palace in Jerusalem or in the wilderness hiding from King Saul, that the Lord is his rock and his shelter. That is David's experience. Past experience has proven that God is a help. I was just talking to Jeff about that a little bit this morning before Sunday school. God proves over and over and over that he can be trusted in our lives. In your life. God has done things in your life. If you look back in the past, things that God has done over the years that He has proven time and time again that He can be trusted every time. And you can look back and you can see that. I told Jeff, sometimes we have to write it down because we forget. And it's good to take notes of that and then look back on it from time to time and remember all of the things that God has done. Even the little things because they all add up to one picture which is God who is faithful. God who is trustworthy. God who is dependable. That's the lesson that David says, I can cry out to you no matter where I am, even the ends of the earth, and I have confidence because in the past you have been my shelter. I can see what you've done in the past. You have a proven track record. And so we can look at the instances in Scripture. We can read about all the things God has done there. And we can even look in our own lives and see how God has proven Himself to be faithful and trustworthy. But there's another rationale for prayer here. It's not just looking at experience and what we've seen God do in the past. There's another rationale. Look at verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. What is David talking about here? It's not just that God has proven himself trustworthy in the past, but he has made promises for the future. God has made promises for the future. That's what David is referring to. 
Now, David starts off in verse 5 speaking of his own vows. He's going to come back to those vows again in verse 8. But the real focus here is on what God has promised to do for David, much more than what David has promised to do for God. But if I'm right about that, if what I'm saying is true, then you might wonder why mention the vows at all. Because the vows represent the starting point. David's commitment to the Lord, where it began, that's what his vows are. Remember in the Old Testament law, a vow was a voluntary worship commitment that any of the Israelites could make at any time. Once a vow was made, it became binding. And in order to fulfill the vow, you had to offer appropriate sacrifices as described in the book of Leviticus. We read that a couple months ago. The point here is that David had committed himself to the Lord at some time in the past. And God had made certain promises that applied to anyone who fears his name, according to what he describes there in verse 5. The heritage of those who fear your name. So those who fear the name of God, God had made promises to them. And what were those promises? Well, Again, we don't have time to go into all the detail of the Old Testament historical record here, but, uh, but the promises included possession of the land of Canaan. Right? The people of Israel, these, uh, David, and David was one of them, they were promised by God that if they feared the Lord, if they obeyed and served God, that He would give them as an inheritance the land of Canaan for their possession and for their children and their grandchildren and their generations. As long as they feared the Lord, they would enjoy possession of the land. That was part of the promise of the heritage that God had pointed out or that God had given them. He also promised that he would bless them as a nation, that other nations would serve them, and that they would not serve other nations, that they would enjoy uh, success as a nation and as a people. David was simply pointing out here in verse 5 that he had received the blessings that God had promised to those who honored him. David was indeed in possession of the land as God had promised. So God had made these promises and God was, was keeping them in the present in David's life and, his, and, and the people of Israel. They were experiencing God's faithfulness. They had made vows. In other words, again, they'd entered into this worship, uh, in, into the commitment to worship the Lord and they were enjoying the blessings of that. This inheritance. Again, the land of uh, of of Canaan is the inheritance. Fourteen times in the Old Testament this word inheritance or heritage here is used. And in every one but one instance it refers to the land. The only time it's used differently it's used to speak of children who are heirs who will receive inheritance of the land of their fathers. And so God had promised His people those who feared His name that they would enjoy the possession of the land of Canaan as heirs and David was simply pointing out this has indeed happened. God had made promises. But you know, David had received even greater promises. And I think that's what's also in view in these verses. David had received even greater promises than just the promises God made to the Israelites as a people. If you, if you want to jot this down, we won't take time to look there this morning, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about a covenant that God made specifically with David to establish his house. His lineage on the throne of Israel. 
the Lord promised that David would have an heir to sit on his throne and that his kingdom would be established forever. That word is really significant and important. That seems to have been in his mind as he wrote verses 6 and 7 here. He's not just asking God to give him a long life, right? Verse 6, you'll prolong the king's life. Sure, but he's not just asking for a long life. Because notice the next line. Remember, in, in, in Hebrew poetry, the lines are parallel, and the parallels serve to work together to communicate truth, and so they don't stand in isolation. So his years, as many generations... David is looking down the road here. He's looking and asking that God, or rather he's, he's, he's recognizing the promise of God to bless his descendants down through many generations. And then in verse 7, he talks about the king sitting before God forever. The word abide there is the word for sit. It's a simple word. But when it's spoken of the king, we're not thinking of the king just taking a seat on a chair. We're thinking of the king taking a seat on a throne, right? So when the king is seated, when he's abiding before God forever, we're talking about the establishment of his kingdom forever. This is the seat of royal authority in the presence of God. And this is the same presence which, is David says, is so powerful in protecting him, even in the ends of the earth in all of his trials. And he prays for mercy and truth that they would preserve the king. Now some people wonder, is David speaking of himself here in the third person? Because it's kind of a transition. Right? Verse, you know, in verse 5, it's you've heard my vows. He's speaking of himself. And then he begins to speak of the king. His years. He shall abide Preserve him. Speaking of the king in third person, well, it's possible that David was praying for himself. I mean, it's not completely unheard of for someone to speak of themselves in the third person, especially when he's considering the, the title and the authority of the king. And so he may be thinking of it that way. And, and again, remember, this is a song for the congregation given to the choir director. So it may be that they're all to sing this. But I think these verses suggest that David is taking a longer view. That he's looking forward to the coming of Messiah, who would be his ultimate descendant. This was the promise of the, the, the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Ultimately, was the coming of the Messiah, the, the ultimate descendant of David, the great king who would sit on David's throne and rule before God forever. He will be preserved by God's loyal love and His righteousness. And it's in Him, in Christ, that all that God has promised to give to David will be fulfilled. That's what he's referring to here, I think. David claiming the promises of God. Because God's been faithful in the past, but God's made promises that he's going to keep in the future. So one of the reasons why how we interpret and understand the Bible is so important. 
Because God has made promises. And how we understand those promises and how those promises will be worked out and fulfilled in the future is absolutely vital to understanding God's Word and what God is saying. David expected not just that he would be established on the throne, not even just that his son Solomon would reign in his stead, but David expected and believed that that reign would continue until Christ And that Christ would take that throne and sit on that throne and rule forever from that throne. And we have to ask, well, where's he today? Well, we're still waiting along with David for the fulfillment of the promise that God has made. This is good reason to pray. This is why this is connected to David's commitment to prayer here because David learned to trust in God through his past experience, but David also learned to trust in God through the promises found in His Word. Prayer makes sense. It's powerful. It's effective. It produces tangible results. Comfort, strength, protection, help from God. These are just some of the results of prayer. Why? Because it's an expression of the believer's weakness, appealing to God's mercy and truth. And just as certainly as Jesus Christ will be preserved by the mercy and truth of the Father when He sits on David's throne, so you and I can trust in the grace of God in this life right now. That's why we end up in verse 8 with David returning to his own vows. His own life of worship and reverence to God. We find David renewing his commitment to praise the Lord. To worship Him with obedience and with sacrifice. He's talking here about a, a lifestyle, a, a habit, a practice that is repeated that will represent every day of the rest of his life. It's not a one-time act of worship. He says, I will daily perform my vows. We come kind of full circle to the end here. That prayer flows from a life of of praise and worship. And I think this is important because early on in the psalm, we might get the impression that prayer is only for those times of desperate need. And I would submit to you that we are often in far greater need than we realize. But the solution isn't going through life constantly uh, down about our circumstances and saying, well, everything's a mess, so I better just kind of, you know, I got to live in constant crying out to God because everything's falling apart all the time. But what about when it's not? How do we stay faithful in prayer? How do we continue on in prayer when, when we're not in the midst of the trial? When we're not at the extreme of the ends of the earth? Well, here we come to this final verse, and I think this is the answer. Because it's a life of praise and worship. It's a habit that develops daily that we obey and that we praise and worship the Lord. And in that context, whether we're in the extreme distress and we cry out to the Lord in desperation for help, or whether things at the moment are going along okay and we seem to be doing just fine, 
We've committed ourselves to praising the Lord. We've committed ourselves to obeying Him, and therefore we pray. Because prayer ultimately flows out of this life that is committed to serving and worshiping the Lord. David touches on in this last verse two really aspects of genuine worship here. Praise and obedience. We tend to think of worship in terms strictly of music, and that's not wrong. David specifically says he's going to make music. He's going to offer public praise to the Lord. But he also says he's going to fulfill his vows. And that's talking about obedience, about keeping his commitments. A few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 56, we read in verse 12 where David said, Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. David was acutely aware of his commitments to the Lord. And he was determined to keep them. That's the meaning of true worship and devotion. Again, it's not just that we would sing praises to God. We ought to do that. But it's that we would recognize the commitments that we have made when we professed faith in Jesus Christ. And being careful then to follow through on those commitments. David understood something about seeking shelter and protection in the presence of the Lord. If we're going to receive shelter, it requires more than just that desperate prayer in a time of trouble. It requires that we have a relationship with God. If we're going to expect God to come through and help us when we pray, we have to first entrust ourselves to Him and to His care. I said before that I wonder what God must think when people pray to Him during that dark and turbulent circumstance in their life who otherwise have nothing to say with, to Him and, have, and, and want nothing to do with Him right? when life is good. Those people who are going along couldn't care about God, but the minute that something bad happens, all of a sudden they're praying and asking God to get them out of the situation. And I wonder, what obligation could God possibly have to them in that instance? No, if we want to have comfort, if we want prayer to matter, if this is to be actually real and tangible and have an effect, then it can't just be something we grab when we're desperate. We have to commit ourselves to the Lord. David could claim something from verse 5, the heritage of those who fear your name. There was an expectation that God would do what He had promised, that He would give what He had promised to those who trusted Him, to those who obeyed Him. David could claim specific covenant promises that God had made to him because he knew the Lord and he had bound himself to, to God in prayer, in praise, in obedience. What about you? Do you know the Lord? Have you committed yourself to Him? Have you cried out for mercy in the light of your own sin? Have you trusted in Him to save you and to rescue you from death and from hell? If you have, and you found Him to be true and faithful, and His grace to be powerful enough to save you from your sins, then you, like David, ought to commit yourself to cry to Him, from the end of the earth, when your heart is overwhelmed. You should. We ought to cry out to the Lord. But you also ought to commit daily to praise 
to honor, to obey, and serve the Lord. This is the, I think, the argument, if we're going to make an argument, that faith is real, that God works in prayer. That those philosophers that I mentioned at the beginning have got it all wrong. I don't disagree that my faith, I don't, I don't disagree that faith is for weak people. That's the whole point. We fool ourselves when we think that we're strong enough and we don't need it. We need to trust in the Lord. Commit ourselves to Him. And pray. David says, when I am in the end of the earth and my heart is overwhelmed, I will cry to you. Let's pray together.